You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, everyone, super excited about today's episode. We're getting the opportunity to speak with Kim, who writes at thefrugalengineers.com. And there's multiple reasons that this episode is going to bring so much value both to you know our lives, getting the opportunity to interview her, but I think honestly to yours. Here's what I hope to be able to pull out of the story. One, when she was sharing with us a little bit of her backstory, she says, I left home when I was 15 on a full scholarship to a STEM boarding school, which was my rescue ladder out of the cycle of poverty. I want to explore that a little bit further. There's something here that I think is going to be useful for our audience. When you add that on to other components of her story, the fact that she and her husband really took to heart this idea of your real hourly wage and was able to use that framework to effectively establish financial independence for themselves in a way that I don't think that we have talked about on the show before, combining that with the level at which they've explored domestic geo-arbitrage, this episode is going to bring incredible value for our community. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. Yeah, this should be really fascinating. It's so interesting when you look at someone's life and you can look at the high level and say, oh, Kim and her husband, they went to Stanford. They're both engineers and this was easy, right? That's the caricature. That's the, I didn't take any time to dive into their story. But then you read something like you just mentioned with this STEM boarding school when she was 15, which was my rescue ladder out of the cycle of poverty. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I am just craving to hear more. I cannot wait to dive into Kim's story. And with that, Kim, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So Kim, we did a little bit of a setup for this episode. And I want to go, honestly, I want to go to that first statement that Brad said, hit him like a ton of bricks, right? I mean, I think one of the things for our community is we're looking for things that are replicable. We're looking for things that serve people where they are. And I think someone, you know, here's engineer and may immediately say, oh, well, this is easy to Brad's point, but your story doesn't start with being an engineer. It starts with a rescue ladder out of poverty. Like what does that line, what does that phrase mean to you? So I grew up in South Carolina in Myrtle Beach and the employment opportunities in a tourist town, they're not the greatest. It's not the best career outlook, especially for young women. You're looking at either going into a career in hospitality or, you know, exotic dancing is very popular there. And so since those careers are so so common where I grew up, the emphasis on education just wasn't there in the public school system. So to be, you know, a young woman in South Carolina and be college bound back in the 2000s when I went to college, it was rare, very rare. We didn't have the greatest resources at the public high school. The dropout rate was really surprising. I remember my high school had a different building for each grade and the ninth grade building was this big and then the 10th grade building was this big. 
and then 11th grade. And by the time you got to 12th grade, it was half the size of the ninth grade building. And it was half full of offices anyway. So it was almost like structurally, you weren't expected to graduate from high school. And in fact, two of my sisters didn't graduate from high school. By the time I was 15, I'd had friends drop out of high school. They were dealing with teen pregnancy, drug addiction. I knew that if I stayed where I was in Myrtle Beach, it was going to be really hard to make a better life for myself. So in middle school, I took the PSAT, right? A standardized test to benchmark kids in their grade for future gifted opportunities. At the time, I got a pretty decent score on the test, and that got me onto this mailing list of gifted summer camps and academic programs and things like that. But I could never attend them because we were broke. My mom had four girls in five years' time. You know, she was a single mom over and over again. She remarried several times, but it was never a stable home environment. So to get invited to a summer camp at Duke University and not be able to go because it cost $800, it was deflating. And then in 10th grade, I learned about this boarding school. It was called the South Carolina Governor School for Science and Mathematics. It was full tuition and room and board paid if you get in. And we had 60 students in each class, so junior and senior year, 120 students total. And I applied, and I got in. I still remember the day that I found out I got in, I got locked out of my house. So here I am jumping for joy and you know, freaking out, and then I have to wait like three hours until my mom gets home from work to tell her about it. But being able to go to something like that and not have the restriction of we can't afford it, it was huge. I knew from the time I was 15, I'm going to go to this school, I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to do something different than what's expected of a young woman in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. First of all, I just want to pause and say how blown away I am by you just sharing that with us. And I think how important it is for our community to hear your story very specifically. I want to focus a little bit more on the, on this governor's school. Now, as you look back, like how was the governor's school able to offer that? How many scholarships did they hand out? Like if you're talking back to your community, you're speaking to young women in Myrtle Beach right now that are listening, that feel that similar sense of trapped you know, what advice would you give to them if they want to follow in your in your footsteps? If they didn't take that PSAT, is it too late? Like, how does someone go about getting into this program? Absolutely. So every student gets the full scholarship regardless. So essentially a public funded boarding school through the state income taxes. There are more than one of these types of schools. So in South Carolina, there's the math and science version. And then there's also one for arts and humanities, if you're more into performing arts, for example. At one point, they talked about creating one that was located in Charleston, South Carolina, for a different branch of of learning, but I don't know if it ever took off. And this is not just specific to South Carolina. So there are, last time I checked, 11 of these state-run, fully-funded residential high schools, right? I think there's one in Indiana, Illinois, North Carolina. Their school is right across the street from the campus of Duke University. So they share a lot of the resources with the university. And the best thing about these schools is you basically start living like a college student for your junior and senior year of high school. 
all of your professors have PhDs, you're living on campus, you're eating on campus. Between junior and senior year, you're doing a research project at a university on campus. So you get research experience. You can apply to college and already be a published researcher. The opportunity is pretty crazy that this is available for students that are interested. You do have to apply just like you do to college. So they want to know your GPA and your class rank and you fill out essays on the application. I want to zone in on that because you got accepted. You're clearly, I mean, you're, you're next level in so many ways, but I'm just curious, you know, has that been cultivated? Were you always this person? Did you intuitively know what you needed to do to get into school? Like, what did you do that set you apart to be accepted when I feel like so many people listen to this say, well, that's probably out of reach. What's the point? I would never get it. You know, like help bridge that gap a little bit. What insight can you provide to someone to help give them an edge and feel confident enough just to apply? So I actually didn't want to go at first. And my mom encouraged me to apply because it was a school for math and science. I loved math. I still love it. And I hated science. And to this day, I pretty much just tolerate science. <laughs> and at the time, I thought, oh, if I like math, then my only career option is to be an accountant. That's it. That's what I'm going to do. So why do I need to go to the school if I just want to be an accountant? It got to a point where this was in 10th grade. Like I said, I, I had friends that were dropping out of school and getting pregnant and getting out of drugs. And I wised up and I listened to my mom. And I filled out the application. So the process itself, I would say to the audience, if you're interested in something like this, or if, you, if you're a parent and your children might be interested in something like this, the application process is the exact same as applying to college. So, you know, letters of recommendations from teachers and things like that. The same advice that you would give to a high school senior who's looking to apply to colleges you would just give it to your ninth or 10th grade high school student. And a lot of it is intentionality and writing an essay that says what your plans are, what you want to make for your future and how this school is going to fit into that. I'm curious if you were to put yourself back and you're thinking through what, what did that look like for you? What was the vision that you cast when you were filling out these applications? That's hard to remember. It was, it was so long ago. Um, it's funny because a few years ago, my younger brother was interested in applying to the school and we couldn't even get through the first half of the first page <laughs> of the application before he threw his arms up. He said, no, forget this. I'm just going to stay in my regular high school. <laughs> so I think knowing yourself and, you know, I used to journal a lot when I was a kid and that's really good practice <laughs> for writing college admissions essays, being able to eloquently talk about yourself in a way that doesn't come off as boasting. If you're keeping a daily journal where you write about the things that you are proud of and the things that you had challenges with, that's material for an essay down the line. So Kim, obviously this was, as you said, a lifeline out of this cycle of poverty, but it's not a straight line guarantee, right? Like where did you take it from there? So you go to this incredible high school, but your story continues. Where did you go to college? And, and how did you deal with the financial ramifications of that based on growing up in this, as you've described it, poverty in South Carolina? So I knew from the time I left home that I was on my own financially. At the time, you know, I was 15 years old and my little brother had just been born, the same one I just talked about. 
So my mom had her hands full, right? She had a baby at home. And when I was at the boarding school, we had a shared bank account where she would send me, I think, $20 every once in a while to go out to the movies. But once I got a boyfriend, she stopped sending the money because she realized that I didn't need it because my boyfriend was taking me out all the time, which looking back, she was right. I I really didn't need any spending money there. But so one direct benefit of going to the school is that if you stay in state, and I'm not sure how this works in the other schools, but if you stay in state, you qualify for an automatic scholarship to an in-state school, the Coca-Cola scholarship which is for high school valedictorians. And since schools like the governor's school don't do class rank, everybody is a valedictorian. (laughs) Which, there you go. Wow. Um, So for in-state, I went to Clemson University in South Carolina. I had a full scholarship. For the first three years, I didn't have to take out any loans. I didn't take out loans until my senior year when, at that point, tuition had literally doubled over the course of the years. And I just needed more. And also I had moved off campus. So it was more expensive. All right, Kim. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like this Coca-Cola scholarship was basically a full scholarship, but it sounds like it was only paying a certain amount. So senior year, the tuition and room and board were over that scholarship amount. So you needed to take out loans, but the first three years it wasn't. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. All right. So you graduated with how much student loan debt did you graduate with? From undergraduate, I think it was maybe like $3,000. Okay. So you said for undergraduate. So does that mean that you pursued a graduate degree? Is is that accurate? Yes. All right. Yeah. I, I went to Stanford for civil and environmental engineering. How did you pick engineering as a profession? Because I know this is the career path that has driven you and your family to financial independence. Just tell us a little bit more about that thought process and how that worked out for you. Well, I started out in geology because I was interested in environmental conservation and natural resources. And that was the program that had those courses at Clemson. And my first semester, I was taking calculus class and I was killing it on the test. I was getting 106 out of 100. And the professor came up to me after class one day and she said, Kim, you are way too good at math to be in geology. You need to switch to engineering. So I set up a meeting with the department head of the major I was going to go into, which was biosystems engineering. And we talked about the environmental component in that. And he explained to me what an engineer does because I had never met one before. Remember, I grew up in Myrtle Beach. So I didn't know what an engineer did. And so I had just kind of ruled it out off my list of majors. But once I got into the program and started taking the classes like statics and dynamics and all the heavy math, I realized, yeah, this is what I should have done from the beginning. (laughs) Wow. That is incredible. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that highlights mentorship, right? Just having this one conversation. I don't know if this person turned into a mentor for you, but just that one conversation really changed the entire trajectory of your life. And I'd be curious to hear if they turned into a mentor or if mentorship has been important otherwise in your life. I would say mentorship has been a key. So one thing I learned from growing up in a household full of women, I was able to use the gift of foresight (laughs) from seeing the decisions and the actions that my older sisters took 
and learning from it before it was my turn to make those same choices. So I was number three of my of my mom's children. So I had a couple of years of watching my sisters, you know, stumble and pick themselves back up. So I've always known from a young age that I don't have to actually make the mistake myself. I can borrow somebody else's experience and use them as a surrogate to learn from it faster for myself. What that looks like in real life is most of my friends are at least five to 10 years older than I am. I tend to be drawn to older friends. And as far as the value of mentors, I would say that a lot of the advice that I received in college was you know, sitting outside of a professor's office during their office hours, and they would come out and want to chat. I'm like, sure, tell me everything I need to know about life. (laughs) And I would take notes, you know, and learning about the path of getting a professional engineering license. That was from a conversation that I had just during a random study session outside of an engineer professor's office. Okay. I want to focus on that because that's really a key to your story is that, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody describe this before. It sounds like this was it for you as well. You're effectively a consultant or a freelancer in the engineer space. Now, is that the title you just used is the title that you would use to describe this approach, this freelance approach to engineering? Yeah, I'm a licensed mechanical engineer. So I'm a professional engineering consultant. Okay. Were there other like lessons there of you hanging outside of office hours? That's the kind of actionable tip that the audience member can take away. Like, are there ways that people can replicate that? Are there pieces of advice that you'd pass on? Because I have never heard someone do that. Just It sounds like you were just literally hanging out outside of these these offices and this transformed your life in a sense. So I'm a little bit of a social butterfly and I never liked doing homework in my dorm room. I always liked to either be in the library or in a little study corner in the engineering buildings. And that particular professor, it's, it's funny, I wasn't studying mechanical engineering for undergrad, but I would do my homework in the mechanical engineering building because they had the nice, fancy new building. So the professor who came out and talked to me was a licensed professional engineer, mechanical, and he became a mentor to me who eventually wrote me a letter of recommendation to get into Stanford. And I was never even in his class So that's an actionable tip right there. The letters of recommendation that you use for undergrad or grad school or jobs, they don't have to come from teachers that taught you. They can be teachers that you formed friendships with just by hanging out outside of their office. I would say don't limit yourself to only connecting with the professors in your department. Yeah, I think it's brilliant advice. And I I love how the payoff there. I mean, that was just incredible. You did not know that was coming. You could not predict that that was going to happen. You just kind of had this instinct that was directionally accurate. And it's incredible to see what came of that. And I think to kind of tie some frames to um, other things, other things that we've talked about in the past, this idea of creating your own luck, you don't know when luck is going to strike, but if you set yourself up for these opportunities, it will at some point in time, it will. I'm very curious and actually going back and talking about the title that, you know, this little on top of this letter of reference that you got that effectively got you into Stanford that you mentioned, you found out about this profession. I'm wondering if you could just say that for our audience, what it was again, and then what it means practically. 
So to be a licensed professional engineer, it means that you've got a four-year degree from an accredited university and that you've worked for four years under the mentorship of another licensed professional engineer. And then once you have your license, you're able to you know, sign and seal on building drawings, be an expert witness in court cases, things like that. Okay. So the reason I brought that up is really an excuse to talk about your real hourly wage because you effectively, I mean, to kind of use layman's terms, you are a freelancer or a contractor in the engineer space. And this path that you went down is largely guided by this real hourly wage calculation that you did. I believe that that is drawn from Vicki Robbins' book, Your Money or Your Life. That's the first time I ever heard about it. I'd love for you to hear about the why of understanding the importance of understanding your real hourly wage in your own life. I actually read Your Money or Your Life when I was a senior in college. I remember thinking, this makes so much sense because I'd worked part-time jobs up until that point. And I remember that feeling of, wow, I worked four hours to buy a pair of jeans. <laughs> and you know, how can I how can I work smarter instead of working harder? And how can I keep more of that pay? Because if you're driving across town to make $10 tutoring somebody and then driving home, you might have used that much in gas, right? So as far as the real hourly wage for engineers, the way it works is if you go get a job, for example, my, my specialty is sustainable buildings, so I've always worked for architecture and building engineering firms. So the people who design the air conditioning for a hospital, for example. And they'll hire you starting out of college at, say, $60,000 a year, which sounds like a great deal for a recent college grad. But if you divide that out by the number of work hours in a year, you're getting about $30 an hour before tax. And when you consider the cost of driving to work, going out to lunch with your coworkers, and all the things that come with maintaining a full-time job, childcare, animal boarding, or if you're traveling for business, my real hourly wage at that first job was really more like 12 bucks an hour. So when you do the math, it's kind of insulting for someone who went through that much education to say, I'm only taking home 12 bucks an hour. And I'm here doing this high-level math and these calculations, et cetera. At some point, I had been promoted to a project manager at my job where I was responsible for managing the budget on our specific task and hiring it out to different people. So I knew what we were charging the client and what we were paying each other. What I realized was, wow, People pay way more than $30 an hour to use a licensed professional engineer. In fact, they pay about $100 an hour <laughs> to use a licensed engineer. And the way it works with a large engineering company is whatever your salary is, say $30 an hour, you multiply it by about three. And that's what they charge the client for your time. And I think this works the same way in other consulting businesses like law that extra $60 or $70 an hour, that's used to pay for your health insurance, you know, half of the FICA taxes, the overhead of having an office in downtown, office supplies, administrative staff, IT staff, and your boss's 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 salary and benefits. So when I realized 
that I could sell my brain by the hour at that higher rate just directly to the client, I knew I need to do this. I need to keep more of what I'm earning, what I'm actually worth. And so to get your license, you have to work for four years under another engineer. And I worked exactly four years. And then I started my own business. I feel like exactly four years means like to the day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So there's a story there. There's a story. Okay. So my husband and I both took the engineering exam on the same day. And it was so stressful getting ready for it. I mean, it, I guess it's sort of like taking the MCAT. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a full day of testing. I had rearranged my work schedule to work 410, so I'd have an extra day off to study. And the day I found out, it was a Friday, and I was at the office, and I got the email, and I was so excited. And I ran, ran around, and I told everybody, and I started feeling kind of funny. So <laughs> I went home early and took a pregnancy test, found out I was pregnant. And I called my husband. I was like, come home, come home. I got good news. And he knew exactly what it was. But finding that out that day, because we had been trying, I went in the following Monday and quit my job. Wow. That is quite a life-changing day. Holy cow. Yeah. (laughs) That is amazing. So talking about starting out on your own, right? It sounds great. And it makes intuitive sense when you talk about this real hourly wage. But you still have to go and get clients. So it's not it's not like a walk in the park. I mean, how does that work? I mean, a lot of people will look at that $60,000 wage and say, okay, that's safe, right? How many people get stuck because it's safe? You took that leap and went out on your own, but I'm sure it wasn't easy. I'd love to hear first your thoughts about safety and then how this worked for you at the beginning. Well, it's funny that you mentioned safety because I started my career right after the economy had crashed at the end of 2008. And in the construction field, entire departments were getting laid off. I remember my first job, I worked at a company that built giant stadiums, hospitals, all these really big name projects for the city of Orlando. And after a hospital would get done, they would lay off the entire structural engineering department because there just wasn't enough work to go around. I remember getting a 10% salary cut within three months of starting my job. And they said, this is to avoid layoffs. So from the beginning of my career, I've never believed in the idea of job security when you put your earning ability in someone else's hands. The risk of being a freelancer is that you eat what you kill, right? And you know, we definitely have seasons where it's really, really good in the, say, winter and not so good in the summer, right? So we have to budget for that within our business and our personal life to kind of even out those dips. Can we ask about, to Brad's question, I mean, I think what you just said is accurate, but really to put yourself at the beginning of going off on your own, finding your first couple of clients, what that actually looked like practically for you? So I found my first client at a conference. It was a green building international conference. And like you said, making your own luck. This was at a random happy hour sponsored by some carpet manufacturer, I believe. (laughs) I met a woman who worked in the sustainability field and she had too much work on her plate. And she said, I need somebody who can help me all remote, who can help me take some of this stuff off my plate. 
and I need somebody who has this certain set of credentials and these this skill set, which is what I was picking up at my day job. So I would say as far as getting your first client, a lot of it is putting it out there, putting your name out there that number one, I'm qualified and number two, I'm available, right? That client, I still work with her today, nine years later. She's my favorite client. At what point, I'm just curious, as you're cultivating this client base, clearly there's recurring work and then there's word of mouth and then there's aggressive branding. Go out and kill it. That's what you said. After you get that first job, that first work, and you started to build out a little bit of word of mouth, like what did it look like for scale and grow for your freelance practice? I started freelancing two years before I quit my day job. So I was working two jobs for two years. That was nights and weekends, about 60 hours a week all in. And over the course of that time, I was putting my name out there as far as volunteering in both the engineering community and the sustainability community. So I served on the board of directors for like a local green building nonprofit. I had my name out there as a guest expert on a website where people would write in questions about sustainable buildings And my husband has noticed the same thing with his freelance path. The more niche you can be, the easier it is to get your name out there. Because when there's only 100 people in the world that have the set of credentials that I have, people know who you are when they're looking for that. I think my husband is so specialized. There might be about 20 people that can do what he does. So use those opportunities when you're at your day job to niche down. I could have chosen to not niche down and just be drawing ductwork for 40 years at an engineering firm. And those kind of jobs, you know, they're a dime a dozen. And honestly, those kind of engineers are treated that way. They're treated like a commodity. So if you want to stand out and get those high hourly freelance rates, you got to specialize in something. I mean, it comes through that you're a next level performer. I mean, that you operate at a whole nother level. And I'm just curious when it comes to how much time it takes you to complete a project, when you pair that with your real hourly wage, what was the difference between when you were working for a you know corporation versus when you were doing this on your own as it applies to your real hourly wage? So I think over the course of a week, I work a lot more efficiently when I'm by myself than when I was in an office just by virtue of the fact that I don't have meetings to go to and I don't have coworkers jumping in all the time, asking me to help them with their projects and things like that. So I'm able to focus on just my task and get it done really quickly. One thing that helped me was when I had my day job, we had all these online trainings for project management, learning how to manage a budget for a large building project, learning how to do proposals and things like that. So When you're in-house somewhere, like I would never tell someone, as soon as you get your diploma, go start freelancing. No, that's like saying you want to open a restaurant. You never worked in a kitchen before. You have to learn the business and learn the day-to-day nuts and bolts of engineering before you go out and, you know, hang your shingle. Another point about the real hourly wage is my husband and I, we actually never charge by the hour anymore because what we realized is the way that we work, we're very efficient people. We just type really fast and we know our way. We know our way around the software program. Solidly striving for 35 words a minute over here. Just barely getting there. Do you guys have competitions for word per minute? 
you know, we've, we really know our way around the software programs that we're working inside. I remember when I had my last day job, I would get so frustrated because we had billable hours quotas and I would finish my work really quickly. And I would have managers come in and say, you need to slow down. You need to make it take an hour. And I never felt like that was ethical to the client in the first place (laughs) to charge them for me, you know, sitting around browsing the internet when I finished their task in 15 minutes. So being able to charge by the task instead of by the hour, I think that's better for everybody involved because the client knows what they're going to pay. It doesn't run over. If I finish my work early, I can get out. I can, you know, go skiing or go to the gym or do something else with my day. So Kim, you actually mentioned skiing there, right? And that wasn't just a random happenstance. You literally pointed out of your window. We were going to try and set a time lapse up for the interview. but uh. <laughs> So I know that geo-arbitrage has been a big part of, of your story. I'd love to hear a little bit about it. And where are you now? So right now we're in Wyoming. <laughs> this is the 35th place I've lived in 35 years. Oh, my goodness. So coming from the South, moving to California for graduate school, starting our careers in Florida, moving to Oregon for a few years after we were location independent and now in Wyoming, we've kind of got it down to a science <laughs> as far as deciding where to live and you know how to visit a new place if you're thinking about relocating there. What it came down to to us was lowering the cost of living on the things that aren't bringing us value. And this came out of me rereading your money or your life as an adult with a full-time salary and a family to provide for. (laughs) What we came to realize was we were living in Oregon. So I'll talk about our most recent move. When we were living in Oregon, we had moved there to get out of the big city of Orlando, Florida, and to get out of the heat and be able to go skiing and just have that more small town lifestyle. But that comes with a price in certain parts of the country. And at the time we were making, you know, these really good freelance wages and thought, yeah, let's do this. Let's inflate our lifestyle a little bit and see how it feels. Sure enough, it feels terrible. (laughs) When you go from building your career in a place like Florida, that's got no state income taxes and very affordable housing prices and, and everything else is very affordable. You've got Aldi for shopping and lots of things to do nearby that you don't have to hop on a plane to go see. And then moving to Oregon, which has what was our highest 9.9% state income taxes on top of paying your 15.3% self-employment taxes as a freelancer and on top of paying the high property taxes and the higher housing costs. Just talking about it right now brings up the same feeling that made us leave, which is this feeling that somebody's sitting on your chest. You know, you're trying to keep your head above water and you know, our friends would say, you guys are making six figures. What are you worried about? And to me, when we lived in Florida and we started freelancing, it was because we wanted to keep more of what we had earned, right? And when we moved to Oregon, we were not keeping it anymore. It was all going to other places. So we decided we're going to change this. We're going to move back to a state that doesn't have income taxes 
and that has reasonable housing prices and property taxes and cost of living. So this year in 2019, we took a lot of vacations and we went to Alaska, Tennessee, Wyoming, and Nevada. And we already had experience in Florida and decided what looked better for us as far as a town that we could retire in. When I say retire, I don't mean, you know, pull the fire lever and we're done. (laughs) I mean, scale our work back to an amount where we don't feel like we are, you know, killing ourselves to keep up with the tax bill. Yeah. And Kim, one thing that you said really struck me, you said, you know how to visit a place if you're thinking about relocating there. And my ears just perked up when you said that. So clearly it can't just be the real estate, you know, property taxes, the state income taxes and and housing. I mean, really anybody can look at just those simple figures. But I mean, when you say something like how to visit a place, if you're thinking about relocating, I'd love to hear more. I'm dying to hear more, honestly. Like there are so many people out there who are potentially thinking about relocating. This geo arbitrage is interesting to a lot of people in the FI community. Give us some of your quick hit tips on what people should look for. So I'm going to borrow this from the Playing With Fire book, where you make your list of the top 10 things you do every week that make you feel happy. And for us, it was things like going to exercise classes at the gym and going to the library. So everywhere we went to visit, I would go to the gym and I would go take a Zumba class while my husband took our daughter swimming or we would go to the library. We went to the library in Alaska <laughs> while we were there on a cruise. You don't visit somewhere we, and not go to the library. <laughs> clearly, every, Everyone else on the cruise ship went straight to like the saloon. <laughs> and we're like, where's the public library? Because we need to know if we're going to live here one day. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, and, you know, touring the elementary schools because we have a first grader. And a big one for us also was the grocery store, right? I, I joke, I call this the Walmart test. If I don't feel safe going after dark by myself into a Walmart to go pick up, you know, a gallon of milk, I'm not going to live in that town, right? <laughs> and we actually crossed a town off our list that was perfect because it failed the Walmart test. The Walmart test is important. I <laughs> double down on that for you. I wanted to follow up with you and ask you, you made this comment about retirement looked effectively like scaling back. And and I love that you don't feel any obligation to fit, you know, what you're doing into society's definition of retirement. But I'm curious, practically, like, what is your vision for a post-retirement life? And I say that to say that you and your husband have reached financial independence by the age of 35. Working basically from here on out is kind of optional at this point in terms of your family's financial stability. So, you know, what does retirement look like for you? So to me, What I've learned from being friends with people that are decades older than me is that your core personality and the things you like to do every day doesn't really change when you get older or when you stop working. So being able to have a lifestyle where you're still using your brain and you're still stimulating that part of you instead of tucking it away because you left working, I think it's really important as far as living a long, healthy life using your brain, not letting it waste away. So for us, retirement, I say we are rewired, not retired. And what that means is we're still engineers, right? But we might not be using those skills to earn a full-time salary all the time. So 
Maybe it is my husband teaching the robotics program at an elementary school, which he's done before, and it was a lot of fun. Maybe it's me using my knowledge of college admissions and things like that to volunteer in that realm, which I have done and I I really enjoy. But as far as the time freedom of being retired or rewired, when you get to a point where your expenses are so low because you've used geo-arbitrage and you've paid off your debt like, and you don't need that much, and you can meet your monthly expenses with a handful of hours a week, right? If you only need to work one day a week, you're pretty much retired already, and you don't really need to overthink that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I love that. I think it's a very balanced approach to this thing. And, and I love what you and your husband have built for your families. Excited to see where this goes into the future. I'm curious, you and your husband have optimized things at every single level looking back. And you know, both of you have extended families. And I'm just curious, has any of this spilled back over at this optimization after you get every line item dialed in for yourself, has it spilled back into your extended family? I'm so glad you asked because this is my favorite financial win to tell anybody. So my mother-in-law is retired now in the traditional sense. She's in her 60s and she's she's done. She has a nest egg that had been invested with a active managed firm. So she didn't really take the time growing up to understand investing in the stock market and and how all these things interact together, she had been using a paid financial advisor who was charging 2% of the assets under management. And for her, she thought, this is a good deal because they are researching everything for me and I'm paying them to do the planning for me so I don't have to think about it. So we said, okay, well, we're, we're really not paying anywhere near that with our index funds and our you know, passive investments. So what are you paying for and how much are you paying? And we did the math and 2% of assets under management came out to about $10,000 a year that she was paying to this advisor, which she didn't notice because it's not like you're sitting down and writing a check for $800 a month to send to your advisor. And what really got me was learning the requirements to get the job to work at this particular firm, because I thought, oh, surely they've got some kind of financial training, maybe a economics degree or, or something. And the only requirement to work at this place was five years of sales experience. It didn't have to be selling financial products. It could have been selling perfume for all they know, right? But you're, you're selling a package to people and then collecting rents on keeping their assets in your firm. So what I said to her was, you meet with this person once every three months and you're paying him $10,000 a year. (laughs) So it's essentially a $2,500 an hourly rate that you are paying this person to do the equivalent of Amazon online shopping for you. You know, anyone who, (laughs) 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 yeah, (laughs) anyone who has ever you know, set up their own Roth IRA or their own taxable investment account knows if you know what you want to buy, you just go in and you say, I'm going to buy this many shares of this fund, click, I'm done. 
It's literally the same process as shopping online, which we all do every day anyway. What convinced her was when we said, you know, you already know your asset allocation, so you don't need his advice anymore. You don't need him monitoring the stock market and all that. You can rebalance your portfolio yourself. And the real kicker was when we looked at what she had been purchasing, it was the same stuff that we own at Vanguard without the overhead of paying a personal shopper to do it for you. So this investment advisor was charging 2% assets under management and was investing in Vanguard low-cost index funds? I, to yes. be honest with you, I don't know when I hear that if that makes it better or worse. Like I legitimately don't. On the one end, like what if he had you in some crazy actively managed churn and burn fund? I might be more upset. Conversely, it's literally set and forget. That's what you do with it. Is it worth $2,500 an hour? Definitely not in any universe. I don't know what's worse. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So when she finally made the move, it was tremendous for us because we live two time zones away and now she's got $10,000 a year extra. And this is real money for her because she's in the drawdown phase, right? Mm. She's not accumulating wealth anymore. She's actually taking it out every month. So that's money that she can come out here, you know, for holidays or just random weekends when there's a good flight deal. And it's noticeable improvement in her quality of life in retirement because she made this one tweak. That is incredible. I'm so excited about this episode. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. If people want to connect with you, they want to connect with your content, find out more about what you're doing, or really just send you a question, you know, just like, I just want to talk with you. What's the best way for someone to connect with you and your content? So my website is thefrugalengineers.com. And on there, you can see my social media and contact page and all that. And yeah, I answer every email. And sometimes I Skype with readers. It's fun to talk to people. All right. Now, on most shows, that would be the end of the episode. But uh, Kim, on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption... Trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation. These questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Kim, question number one. What is your favorite blog, podcast, or book of all time? All right. Can I have two? Oh, you bet. Okay. So my favorite book is called How to Raise an Adult. And it was written by the dean of undergraduates at Stanford. So there's a little tie there, of course. But it's a great book because it talks about where to draw the line between helping your kids and hurting them. As far as the concept of economic outpatient care, we talk about that with adult children, but this author goes way back to when they're toddlers, and she gives you detailed lists of things that your kids should be able to do by each age. And if you're not making them do those things for themselves, you're really kind of crippling them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this is the book I recommend to anybody who has kids, 
And also to anybody who works with millennials who were raised a little bit differently than maybe the previous generation. Oh, those millennials. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, I'm going to go buy a copy of that book or check yeah, in my library I, I'm first. I'm checking right? it out from the library right now as we speak. <laughs> All right. I'll be in the queue. Yep. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we use the same <laughs> library. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then my favorite blog, it's actually not my own. It's called Ellie Mondelli. So this woman, she is 30 years old. She has two paid off homes. One is hers and one is a rental home. And she does not have a college degree. So I think seeing her story and the way that she has managed to build wealth at such a young age without the advancement of having a high paid STEM degree or being a freelance engineer it's amazing. And so she's really big on Instagram and they share to the penny their finances, uh, their faces, everything. They just don't share their real name. So her budget spreadsheet is what I actually use. It's hanging on the wall behind me, but <laughs> that's what I use in our day-to-day household. It's really easy to use and helps you save up for big expenses like sinking funds. Wow. This is awesome. Brad, we're going to have to ask her yeah. on the show. Yeah, for real. Jonathan, you'll be happy to know that our local library had four copies of the book. So there are three left. Well, how many copies of our book do they have? No, okay, we'll find out later. All right, question number two, an inflection point in your life that was especially memorable or meaningful. Okay, this would be when I came back from a year off from college. So I took a gap year between junior and senior year and I went to work at Disney World. And came back with $30,000 in debt. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So 20 of that was a car because I crashed my paid off car and and financed a car. And 10 of that was credit cards from living like I had a full-time salary, but I was really making $9 an hour working at Disney World. You're making almost what you're making as an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for shame. (laughs) (laughs) So coming back and realizing, wow, this is the first time I'd ever been in debt because remember, I had I had scholarships that were paying for everything for the first three years of college. I had a friend, again, this was a mentor who was like 20 years older than me and sat down and said, do you know about Dave Ramsey and the debt snowball plan? And for me starting out with you know no financial knowledge of, of anything, The fact that he took the time to sit down with me and make my first budget spreadsheet was life-changing. And I actually, about six months ago, sent him a message on LinkedIn because we lost touch. And I was like, do you remember that time that you set me straight financially? Well, now we have this blog. And (laughs) Oh, wow. That's amazing. He did follow up, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's incredible. All right, Kim. Question number three, your favorite life hack. Oh, you guys are going to love this. Okay. My favorite life hack is saving for college using a health savings account, an HSA. And here's why. So you probably already know the HSA is triple tax advantaged, right? Yes. So the real kicker with the HSA is it is double FAFSA blind. The FAFSA looks at your assets and your income. And with your assets, they do not count your retirement accounts, which includes your HSA. And as far as income, when you reimburse yourself for a previously paid medical expense from your HSA, that is not counted as income on the FAFSA either. So what we do is we pay cash for all of our medical expenses out of pocket right now, keep the receipts, you know, scan them in, keep a paper copy, 
And then when our daughter goes to college, I've already got $12,000 of what I call college tuition vouchers in a binder (laughs) that we can use to pay for college that doesn't show up on any of the tax paperwork or the FAFSA. Awesome. Yeah. So I am a huge fan of the HSA. We just recently got one set up for us over the last two years, and we have been funding that to the max. And I simultaneously, uh, with the birth of our second child, have had a significant number of medical bills that we have cash flowed. And we have those receipts, and I'm just setting that aside. And now I have some guidance for how I might be using that. I was just thinking down the road, but I really like this idea with college as well. Pretty cool. Very, very cool stuff. All right. Question number four the biggest financial mistake you've made? So it goes back to that gap year. When I took the job at Disney World, the thought was, I'm going to get Disney on my resume and it's going to open doors for me later, which it did. So I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, I did not put any kind of limits on my spending or any kind of boundaries on like a budget or or anything like that. And I started dating a guy who had a full-time job. He was an engineer and spending way more than I could on credit cards to be able to live that lifestyle. Right. So the biggest mistake was just to not slow down and say, Hey, you're making $9 an hour. This guy's making $200,000 a year. There is no way you're going to be able to do the same kind of stuff this guy does. And just recognizing the incompatibility and being able to say, no, I'm not going to go, you know, fly across the country this weekend for a vacation. Being more realistic and living within my means as a college student and enjoying that because you can have a lot of fun when you're earning $9 an hour and getting all the free benefits of working at Disney World. It's just a different kind of fun. All right, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. Okay, I've thought about this one a lot. (laughs) It kind of goes back to comparing yourself to other people, and specifically in college, right? So recognizing that it's okay to be different and that your standard of living doesn't have to match the standard of living of the people around you, right? So when I was in college, I had no help from my family. And I had classmates whose parents bought them cars and gave them $200 a week allowance and paid for their college tuition and room and board and everything. So when you're on campus and it's your first time living alone as an adult, it's really hard because you are comparing yourself with what everybody around you is able to do but what you don't see is the benefactor that's writing the checks for them because people don't say that. They don't say like, oh, I've got all this money for my parents. And that goes on to when you go to buy your first house or you go to put your kids in private school. You know, so much of that stuff is being funded by grandparents and, you know, parents of adult children who will give you a down payment on your first house. And so, you know, if you see something that looks a little bit strange for your situation where you say, I'm just starting out. It's okay to be different. You really can't compare yourself to the Joneses because maybe the Joneses have rich parents and they're just not telling you. (laughs) That's my advice is don't be in a rush to keep up with everybody around you because they might have a completely different funding situation. That's incredibly valuable advice. Now we do have a bonus question for you. What purchase have you made over the past 12 months that has brought the most value to your life? 
oh, my robot vacuum. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure that's a very common one these days. But yeah, we use it every night and we have a house that is, you know, hardwood floors. We only have just this one carpet behind us. And being able to turn that thing on, it is so easy. And having a kid at home and being able to teach her how to push on (laughs) on the robot, she counts that as a chore. (laughs) It's such a blessing. That's very cool. Outsource the robot operation to your daughter, I like. (laughs) You got to empty the – does your daughter at some point, is she going to graduate to emptying the uh, the collector into the trash as well? Is that like graduate level? It might show up on that that book, that list, How to Raise Adults. It might show up in one of the chapters. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that the next edition is going to incorporate robotic chores. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Well, by way of reminder, you can find Kim at thefrugalengineers.com. Definitely go check that out when you get a chance. And if you got value from today's episode, and if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us in what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of Fi, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.